bottom line, uh, what the teaching boils down to is a form of Judaism. Uh, I talked to uh, Raymond the first time back when I was still living in California. He contacted me. We talked on the phone. We uh, corresponded by email. I sent out uh, a paper that he had written to all of the main teachers on the teacher service team that would include people like Douglas Jacoby and Steve Staten and Steve Kennard and Tom Jones and Steve Brown and a number of people. And so I have been dealing with this uh, myself, even from a distance prior to having come here. But the more that I've looked into it, the bigger issue uh, you really see it is in relationship to Judaism, the very thing that the Hebrew writer was dealing with to try to get Jewish Christians not to be doing it. We've got Gentiles doing it, which is unheard of in the New Testament totally. So I want to share some teaching with you. And, of course, as Carl said, uh, you know, we love the Burns. Uh, the fact is, they're very involved in some great things. Care for the poor, jail work, a number of things. But my Bible and yours said, life and doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I know people that are atheists that do a lot of serving and good things, and I commend them for it. But what they say about God and belief in the Bible and so forth, that's a whole different matter. And truth ultimately is going to have to triumph the rest of it. Because when we get away from truth, we're in trouble. But what is the relationship here that we're talking about? One of the issues is the correct name of God. Do we have the, quote, correct name of God? Uh, the Bible says that uh, people didn't, shouldn't use God's name in vain. We misunderstand what that means, and I don't have time to explain it now. But I'll mention a podcast from Douglas Jacoby uh, that I will urge you to listen to, okay, that deals with this very thing. But at any rate, the Jews, uh, the scribes, quit using one of the terms describing God, and they didn't say it out loud at all. And they even changed the way that they wrote it. And so there became some confusion. When they read the scripture aloud, the Jews substituted what is called the Tetragrammaton, which is four letters, four consonants, because the Hebrews just had the consonants. And that uh, Tetragrammaton is YHWH, normally translated Yahweh. And so the idea is you've got to use God's name as Yahweh, or you are uh, not obeying God and not honoring God. But when the Jews got to it, they just substituted the word Adonai, Lord, which is a word used commonly through the Old Testament, a lot. God is actually described with many, many different terms. Adonai is one, Yahweh is another, but many other terms. But at any rate, we sort of lost the use of this term. But then the Jews themselves, when they did the translation from Hebrew into Greek in about 250 B.C., uh, it's what we call the Septuagint or the LXX 70 because 70 scholars worked on it. 
the translators substituted as they brought the uh, word over into Greek, they substituted Kyrios uh, as Lord for the divine name when Yahweh was used. The name Jehovah is actually a product of trying to kind of deal with the Yahweh term, but they mixed in some other things with it and came out to another uh, actually substitute for Yahweh. But there are some Bibles even, like the Old American Standard, that use the term Jehovah, and that just lets you know that originally it was the YHWH or the Yahweh uh, when it came to that. In our more modern versions, when you see L-O-R-D, all capitals, that means it was the four letters, the Tetragrammaton, or the uh, Yahweh term. Uh, now, so, some, and I would say very, very few, look at certain Old Testament passages and conclude that unless we say Yahweh is God's personal name, we are in sin and may or will be lost. Uh, I asked Raymond back in uh, when I was in California, are you saying that if I don't use the term Yahweh, that I can lose my soul? And he said, yes. And I said, well, is this a private conviction you have? And he says, well, I don't go around sharing it, but if people ask me, I'm going to tell them what I believe. And, of course, some of that has been occurring, which brings us to tonight. But uh, that is the doctrine. And so based on that teaching, uh, if you accepted that to be true, that would mean that every teacher in our movement is lost. Because I've written them repeatedly about these issues, and they're saying exactly what I would say had they not even responded uh, I think all of us have the same conviction about that. Here's sort of the passage that gets people off on this. Let me explain it to you a bit. Moses said to God, this is at the burning bush, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of our, your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what's his name, then who shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's the word Yahweh. That's what it means. I am, the eternally existing one. It's not really a personal name at all. It's a description. And it's even beyond comprehension. Can you comprehend I am? I've always been, always will be, no beginning, no end. I can't really get that, but God was wanting to impress on the Israelites in captivity that my nature is very different from anything you have learned in Egypt or anywhere else, uh, the idols. So it's really about the nature of God, not a personal name like John, Rick, or Harry. But uh, that's who, who he said. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am, Yahweh, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And so the idea is we have to use this name forever and ever and ever. It says forever, right? Of course, when you read the Old Testament, circumcision was to be forever. 
uh, keeping the Sabbath day was to be forever. The Levitical priesthood was to be forever. It just means age lasting, and that age is defined for us. How long was the age? See, forever doesn't always mean what heaven means, which is really without end. Sometimes it just means for the set period that God has set. But at any rate, without worrying about that, it's not a personal name in the first place. It's a description name. You say of someone, you know, he has a good name. You don't even tell his name. You say he has a good name. What does that mean? A good reputation. His qualities are good. That's what's really taking place in Exodus when we're looking at these passages. For example, in chapter 6, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And yet, when you go back and look at the Hebrew, God used the term Yahweh all through Genesis. Certainly, he used the term to describe himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there is something new about what's taking place in the Exodus, the giving of the law, the establishment of Israel as the nation of God. Uh, and so he's describing himself this way. He said, I'm, I didn't make myself known to them in that way. He certainly made himself known as Yahweh, but he didn't make himself known as the covenant God with all the power, with all the redemption that was going to be a part of his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Does that make sense? You get that? Exodus 23. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name, Yahweh, is in him. My name is in him. What does that mean? He didn't turn an angel into deity. It simply means that he comes with my authority and my power, and you had better listen to him. That's how the name often is used. And so the power is in the angel. What can we learn from the New Testament? Here's the real clincher, guys. For starters, the inspired apostles and prophets of the New Testament translated, when they dealt with a passage in the Old Testament that had Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, in it, uh, they translated as kurios, which was the equivalent term in the Greek language, just like they translated agape as love and huios as son and on and on and on. They translated it into a Greek term, and so they didn't feel compelled to bring Yahweh as a distinct term, into the New Testament. That's really interesting, and I'll show you why in a moment. So they just took what they thought was the equivalent term in Greek and translated Yahweh into kurios. All right? The Greek New Testament uses kurios, which is properly translated as Lord when citing Old Testament passages. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Here it is from the Old Testament. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, Yahweh, uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Matthew 3, and this is a Jew translating. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, period, and make straight paths for him. And so a Jewish writer, Matthew, who was the most Jewish of writers, he translated Yahweh into a form of Kyrios. That's what they did with almost every Hebrew term. They translated it. There was nothing magic about uh, the term Yahweh itself. It just denoted God as the everlasting, ever-existing one, just like all the other words that were translated. Now, the writers of the New Testament could have used Yahweh, but they did not do it. Uh, they did strikingly use many other Aramaic terms. That was the he Hebrew dialect of their day, Aramaic. They used many Hebrew terms. They brought them right in to the Greek translation. And, and you know, Talithakum, uh, all of these, Abba, Raka, Mammon, Rabboni, all of these. So they brought some Hebrew terms in. They certainly could have done that, but they didn't do it with Yahweh. They just translated curios. Okay, that, does that not make a statement? <laughs> Consider this. If failure to use the exact Hebrew term Yahweh is a salvation matter, as the Burns flat out clearly claim, they do. The New Testament writers caused their readers the Gentiles, for sure. You could say, well, maybe the Jews knew better that became Christians. But for sure, as they sent their letters out, if they didn't use that term and it was a salvation issue, they caused their readers to be lost, and yet they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write curios. Isn't that curious? <laughs> Not wishing to make light of this matter. It is a serious matter. Now, John 17 Jesus is praying. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So I have made known your name to the apostles. I don't think it took three years to teach them how to say Yahweh. The New International Version translates the meaning. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So to reveal God's name means to reveal God's nature. And you can see that here from the translation. But the word name, it's not the, the, the word name itself, namas, is uh, not namas, uh, but is actually uh, in the Greek language here. But he just says in the NIV, I've revealed you because it's the nature of God here that's being revealed. Here's another thing in the New Testament that I think is interesting. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we often say that when we baptize someone, right? But in Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In one place it says the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Another place it says in the name of Jesus Christ. Are those two different things? No. 
It's just talking about you baptize them in the name of God. You baptize them into him. And it is not a formula in the first place. You don't have to say anything. We do because of visitors and wanting them to know what we believe about baptism and what occurs at the point of baptism. But what you say is not some formula. Uh, it's simply what you do. If they know they're getting baptized to get their sins forgiven and make Jesus the Lord of their life, what you say or don't say doesn't change that one iota. I heard someone say the other day uh, in a baptism, they mentioned some of what we normally do, but they didn't say for forgiveness of sins. And yet the hour or hour and a half before that, when everybody was sharing about them, everybody was talking about the new life and becoming my sister, blah, blah, blah. Everyone knew it was for forgiveness of sins. Saying it is it, not a formula. It's what you do. And so in the name of Jesus, in fact, in Colossians 3.17, I may have left that out, I shouldn't have, but in Colossians 3.17, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. So does that mean every step? Okay, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. <laughs> of course not. It just means in our heart and consciousness, as we do what we do, we are doing it by the authority and the power to honor the name of Jesus. It's not what we say, it is what we do. Now in the pagan religions, they did have a lot of things tied to the pronunciation of their deity. How many times they said it. Uh, the way they said it. That's paganism, to think that pronunciation of something is going to make or break your salvation. That was known in the pagan religion, certainly not in God's. Here are a few more passages. You want to talk about the name by which we have to be saved. Salvation is found in no one else, and there is no name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And he's talking about Jesus there, right? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when you get in the New Testament, you learn a number of things. Jesus is the Greek. Yeshua, Joshua, that is Jesus in Hebrew. They didn't put Jesus' name in Hebrew. They put it in Greek, just like they translated Yah Yahweh as Kyrios. Uh, I don't know of anybody that insists that we call Jesus by his Hebrew name. Why would we insist that using a Greek translation of one of the many terms by which God is called in the Old Testament is a soul-damning sin? Uh, that, to me, is ludicrous. Again, I ask, what is the issue and the answer is, there is no divine issue, only a man-made issue. Okay? And much more could be said about this and has been. This is on the outline that you can find. DouglasJacoby.com. He has an 18-minute podcast with notes, uh, and it's just called The Name of God. He's, he's got a million podcasts, give or take. And he has some that are premium. You have to pay per month to be a part of his premium 
service. This particular one is a part of his premium service, but I said, Doug, could we make an exception so the Southwest region and Dallas can read the thing if they don't uh, happen to be premium members? And he immediately changed it, and it's no longer premium. Anybody can go and listen to it, and I urge you, please go and do it. And after looking through his website, he covers everything. Uh, you might want to use his website. You might want to become a premium member. Uh, uh, that, that might not be a bad thing for you to do. Now, here's the other thing besides the name of God, and this is what is called a Torah pursuant issue. The word Torah is the Hebrew word for the law, for the Old Testament. Pursuant means that some are, in their words, seeking to better understand the law by actively participating in practices demanded in the law for Old Testament people. Now, do we need to learn more Old Testament? Yes. But I don't think I need to be observing uh, their feast days and the Sabbath day and whatever else in order to understand the Old Testament. I think I can read, read that and figure out what they did, etc. But that's what Torah pursuant people do. They feel like we've got to get back like they were to really understand Torah. And since it came from God, we need to pursue that to really understand. To me, that sounds like Jesus and something else. In Ephesians and Hebrews and other places, they are very clear. It's not Jesus plus anything. And we'll explain that more. But the arguments uh, can be made to sound very logical and very good, but my question is, are they? I think they're a direct violation of many passages in the New Testament and are therefore a false teaching. I'm totally supportive of what the leadership here has done. Here's why I say that. The law of Moses was designed to be temporary, leading to the coming of Christ, who fulfilled the law and completed the law. He was the end or the aim of the law, Romans says. Luke 24, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you, that's before the crucifixion and resurrection. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That was the threefold division of the Old Testament in the first century with Jews. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He fulfilled it. You look at Romans that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, Torah, for what the Old Testament law was powerless to do and it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of Torah, the law, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. And so he fulfilled the law, and because we're in him, we did. And now we are in his covenant and in his name. Galatians 3. Galatians is all about this whole thing. Uh, Paul was so upset that people were trying to combine Christianity with other things, including Judaism, and mainly Judaism, in Galatians. 
before this faith came, the new covenant, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So it doesn't present the law in too good a light right there. Locked us up in it. Paul, uh, Peter will say a lot the same later in, in Acts 15 that we'll read. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Why pursue something we're no longer under at all? In Galatians 4, he says, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. 2 Corinthians 3, but their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. In the dispute about the Jews and Gentiles and some Jewish Christians trying to bind things of the law on Gentiles, there's a big discussion, Acts 15, the Jerusalem conference we call it. Peter says this, and he is the apostle to the Jews. He made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Why pursue something that is called a yoke and a burden? We've been delivered from that. Acts 15, here's the letter they wrote to the Gentile Christians. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you Gentiles with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. <laughs> it, it wasn't a real long letter. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I mean, I'm just picking a few verses. It is true. This is important. It is true that some Jewish Christians continue to observe Jewish practices when the church was established on two conditions only. Number one, they couldn't bind any of it on Gentiles. That was Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Conference. Number two, they couldn't view those things as a matter of their own salvation. And Paul took a vow in Acts 18. He went in with some Jews that had taken a vow into the temple in Acts 21. They're all Jewish Christians. However, God allowed these early Jewish Christians to keep certain 
aspects of the law as a matter of Jewish custom and family tradition, not Gentiles. Never do you read about any Gentile doing this in the New Testament. They were not Torah pursuing. They were Torah escaping. <laughs> Even for those Jews who continue, uh, who continued to follow the customs, this period was to end. The Hebrew letter was written to Jews that were being tempted to return to Judaism. Not written to Gentiles, it's written to Jews. It's very Jewish. And they were tempted to return to the very thing that they had escaped from and left to be a part of Christ and the new covenant. But here's what he said about it. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for a second or for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not look like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's not saying we don't share our faith. That's just saying in the Old Testament they were born into the covenant and then had to be taught about God. That didn't work so well. And so in the New Covenant, we have to be taught first and then born. And so anyone that comes in, comes in as a knowledgeable person rather than someone as an infant who is not. He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And then in bold letters here, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Okay? got an insurance policy that is obsolete as of last week because I changed companies. That dude is obsolete. I got another one in force now. I got a second covenant uh, with an insurance company. But he said it's made obsolete, but now get this. And what is already, what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So I think God gave the Jews about a 40-year, one-generation period to kind of work out of all of those Jewish-type things. But he said it's already obsolete. We're under a new covenant now. But he says it's about to disappear. The temple was going to be destroyed. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Uh, Judaism was basically a sacrificial system religion. All of that was going to be gone very, very soon after this letter was written. I think that is my last slide. I do want you to get the stuff and look at it and re-study uh, re it. But I, I will say this. Obviously, the question is going to come up. The elders ha have met with Raymond especially quite a bit. And Mark, I have met with him since I've moved to Dallas. Uh, but they have said why don't you guys find a group that teaches what you teach? And they said, no, this is our family, and we're going to keep coming in spite of you asking us not to. 
So not only are they messed up on the Old Testament, but they're saying we will not obey the elders, and we're still going to come. So the question comes up, how do you interface with them? What I would do is I would, I would say hi, but that would be it. We will have no conversations. There will be no fellowship. There is no social fellowship based on those passages we read, and I would not engage in conversation with them. Now, if they want to sit down with some leaders and we talk over issues and try to help them come to a different place than they are, certainly we're willing to do that. The leaders here brought in Steve Brown back a couple of years ago just for the purpose of getting with Raymond. So it's not like a lot of attention hasn't been given to this over a period of years. Uh, but that is how you should handle it. Uh, that should be no social fellowship. That would include to me even normal conversation. Greet them. I'm not, you know, don't want to be ugly to anyone or rude. But at the same time,